Hello, welcome. I'm Jacob Westbrook. Today I would like to present to you a case study, if you will, or rather, I suppose, the introduction to a case study that will, I hope, uh, span several episodes of this program and give you a in-depth, greater knowledge of something that's very near and dear to my heart, and that is the Oregon Ducks football team. Now, it is very hard to separate the Oregon Ducks as a football team from the university from which they come, the University of Oregon, that is. And so, before we dive into the Ducks proper, I should think it's only necessary that we go back in time a bit and look at where it all started, really. Because the Ducks, if I had to describe them, if I had to sum them up in an image of what they are and what they've always been since the beginning. The Ducks are like a fifth grader who picks a fight with a room full of first graders and wins most of the time just because he's bigger than they are. Now, of course, this leads to him assuming that he can take on, oh, let's say the high schoolers and their classmates, they, they, egg, they egg the fifth grader into believing this, that they can actually go up to the uh, 11th, 12th graders and uh, pick a fight with them, and it only makes this problem worse. Now, the classroom that I'm speaking of is the Pacific Northwest, this area. The high schoolers would be college football's elite. Not even the elite, actually. Middle of the pack, top of the pack. I'm talking the classic programs in college football. You know, it's big in the South, uh, gotta start with the Ivy Leagues. But UO is not from that tradition. UO is from the Pacific Northwest. Much to their chagrin, they're the outsider looking in. They want something that they were not born into. Now, in my analogy here, I'd say that uh, those classmates that were egging them on, that's the local press and, I suppose in recent decades, the national media. I think you see where I'm going with this little setup here. You see, the Oregon Ducks, they've always been who they are. I used to believe, as I'm sure many have, that the Ducks became the Ducks in Oh, roughly mid-90s, the Mike Bellotti coaching years. Uh, now, it's going to be a long time in the story before we even get to Mike Bellotti, but you might be forgiven for thinking that that was when you uh, first started picking up on signs that the Ducks were a bit, yeah, a bit odd. Uh, maybe a little out of their league, prima donnas, if you will. Maybe overinflated, overhyped. But that didn't just come out of nowhere. That didn't happen overnight. We, we got to go way back here. You see... Current attitudes, they have an origin somewhere, and for the Ducks, it's its the beginning. Now, before I go much further, I'd have to say, the story of the Ducks is faithfully and inescapably tied with the story of the Oregon State Beavers, Oregon State University, and Corvallis. Now, the Ducks wish this wasn't the case. The Ducks wish they never had to look at Oregon State ever again, especially the fans, I would say. They wish that they were so far above and beyond the ranks of an Oregon State, that even the mere mention of them competing, it would be comical. They'd, they'd laugh you out of the room if you even suggested it. Again, it has always been this way. Now, I wasn't aware of this until recently, until I unearthed the history, but it's been like this from the start. UO fans, to this day, Duck fans, will derogatorily refer to Corvallis. Uh, they'll refer to OSU as a little brother, you know. But, uh, and then that's common for a lot of f football programs and their rivals. Oh yeah, we're the, we're the big guys and we got little brother hanging around, we pick on them, you know. But this characterization is actually far more accurate than they realize. Now, you see, Oregon State is a thorn 
in the duck's side. Precisely because it reminds them of who they are. No matter how good Oregon starts to think that it is, Oregon State's always waiting in the wings to drag him back in their spot, remind them which family they belong to. Alright, listen, guys, you're not Alabama, you're not Georgia, you never will be. Now we live in the era of uh, upheaval in the Pac-12 conference, of course, the uh, the Ducks, there's talk of them maybe joining the Big Ten after USC and Cal have decided, you know, they're, they're too big, or sorry, is it Cal or it's UCLA, I think, uh, I apologize, but they've decided, you know, they're too big for uh, for the Pac-12 now, little, <laughs> but you can you can kind of see the argument because they're the big LA school, they get, they're the big draw for talent and money in the area, Oregon's like second place to the LA schools. But uh, Oregon's thinking, oh, we're going to go join the Big Ten. First of all, I really want to see that happen. Mainly because it would be a spectacular failure on all counts. Because Oregon is not a Big Ten school. Oregon is not a Big 12 school. Oregon is not even an Ivy League school. Oregon is Pac-12. Oregon cannot escape being Pac-12. It, it thinks it's better than Pac-12. It is not. Whenever they're on the national stage, they show it time and time again. This is the story, of course, that the University of Oregon is, they're, they're trapped in this. Now, let's get into, let's get into the nuts and bolts of the, uh, the very beginning here. Before we even touch the football program, it's important to have context. Uh, this will be a bit of a uh, prologue, I think. Oregon was a relatively new state in the mid-1800s. It was growing, and public interest in the idea of a state university that was so, it was so great during that time that two projects were suggested almost simultaneously at the Constitutional Convention that resulted in the creation of the two universities. Now, the first plan called for the creation of an industrial university of Oregon, which was to combine scientific research with extension activities for the benefits of the farmer. Two towns were considered but deemed inadequate. Which, uh, that was uh, Marysville and Jacksonville. Now, uh, farming is big in this area, of course. It's, uh, I mean, obviously not as much now, but it's still, uh, you still got a lot of family farms around here, and obviously it would have been huge post-Civil War America farming. And so, when they were talking about state university of some kind, obviously it would center around that, teaching farmers uh, techniques and tools, agriculture and all that. Now, consequently, the legislature passed a law that there would be no further relocation of the university during that session, but in addition, it became evident that the very sparse population of the early 1850s, that the future of the population and development was being too rapidly anticipated. So, 1850s, they decided, eh, it's a little early to be thinking about this. We're not quite big enough yet population-wise. We'll hold off for now. So they uh, set aside the decision and created a provision to accumulate funds until there was an amount for a suitable endowment of an institution, and they asked Congress for two additional townships of land, this act was identical with what later passed in Congress as the Morrill Land Grant Bill in 1862. Now, with this federal act, Oregon was granted 90,000 acres of land. I have always been tempted to dwell upon the importance of the land-grant decision because it was revolutionary. It broadened educational opportunity. It opened the doors of higher education to professional training. It cleared the way for the Agricultural Extension Service and the introduction of vocational courses into the high schools. It was not until 1868 that it decided that the Methodist Church South at Corvallis would become the land-grant college. Now, this Methodist college would soon be known as Oregon Agricultural College. It obviously focused primarily on 
Agricultural Matters, uh, OAC, as it would later be termed. And uh, eventually the OAC became Oregon State College and then Oregon State University. These are the events of Beaverland, recorded on the spot as they actually happened. And you were there. However, back at the time, the state endowment still existed. So they already they had the land grant for an agricultural college. They still had money set aside for another college. And uh, they put it away for later, and uh, that became University of Oregon. Now, during the mid-1800s, I have to say note here, all the colleges created at the time, uh, in Oregon at least, they were denominational. The entire idea of higher education, up until the 1900s, in fact, it was a religious idea. It wasn't really until the modern era when atheistic-minded activists inside the institutions uh, sought to fundamentally alter that. In 1872, when the legislature began reinvestigating a university location for use with the state endowment funds, a group of citizens from Eugene organized forces to campaign for a university in Eugene that would be non-denominational, in other words, not connected with any religion or church within Oregon. Now, this wasn't unheard of at the time, but it was a sharp break with, uh, you know, tradition, consensus. Higher education was strictly the domain of the church. It was their responsibility to educate. Anyway, in return for the location of the university in Eugene, the property had to be ready for the state by January 1st of 1874. The bill included various sections. But the most significant was the paragraph, which forbade the enactment of any sectarian religious tests for students or teachers connected with the university. Now, I'm highlighting this specifically to draw a contrast here with Oregon Agricultural College, or the Methodist College, as it was still known. What I'm trying to say is, University of Oregon was founded by godless atheists. Now, is this relevant to the story? I argue that it is. Now, UO was established on day one as regarding itself as something superior to the old institutions full of, you know, superstitious, Bible-clutching hayseeds, like those those rubes over in Corvallis studying how to raise cows. Nah, 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 nah. All right. This is modern times, buddy. We're smarter. We're modern. We are scientifically minded. All right. Oh, the folly of... Well, this is the present. Obviously, this is the future, and we're progressively minded, and we have to throw off all this old garbage. Uh, just as an aside, kind of tangentially related, I suppose, but I guess it kind of pokes a hole in the whole, well, it's progress, it's science. Eugene was a huge Confederate stronghold at this time, actually. This was, like, just after the war. The Register Guard newspaper, still around today, it was a South-supporting paper during the war, and even the county was named after uh, Joseph Lane, prominent slaveholder. The University of Oregon actually has several buildings named after leaders of the KKK. They're deeply ashamed of this fact today, of course. Oh boy. Anyway, my point is, by 1876, University of Oregon opened its doors. Permanently awarded to the city of Eugene by the Legislative Assembly of 1872, and the first building, D.D. Hall, is a memorial to the self-sacrifice of our pioneer forefathers. And there we had it. Two colleges. 45 minutes from one another. One of them attended by farmers, religious types, hick country kids. And uh, the other college, the more, the more upper class types, the ones who were, you know, more progressively minded and came from more well-off families. I mean, 
After all, this would end up being, uh, or at least being the precursor to the era of eugenics and lots of other horrible atrocities that were normalized under the banner of science and, and progress, you know? This is, uh, this is the modern times. Isn't it, isn't it great that we finally got that old stuffy religion out of our colleges, you guys? So we have here two schools that were very close to one another, and yet diametrically opposite. Not just in the educational approach or like the philosophy underlying how the schools ran, but the class of students. You had the farmers versus the city kids. The stage was set for one of the all-time college rivalries in the last hundred some odd years. And now, with that backstory out of the way, we can begin to tell the complete history of the Oregon Ducks. It's a Shakespearean tragedy, or comedy, depending on how you view it, and I hope you'll stick around to hear more.